The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. In modern conservation, we are creating innovative solutions to apply toward conflict resolutions between people and wildlife, blending science, biology, animal behavior, biogeography, and disease prevention into effective and non-lethal conflict resolutions. One of the biggest problems we face is when carnivores eat livestock. It's an economic problem and a social problem. When our only tool in the toolbox solution is to simply kill the problem animal, the results often create a cascade of consequences that ripple out bigger than the one animal or that one rancher or pastoralist and also flares up intense emotional and social responses too. Finding effective and non-lethal solutions is critical as we move forward in a rapidly changing world with an increasingly diminished wildlife populations. Today, we're talking lions, free-ranging wild African lions, and the, whose population has decreased from more than 400,000 50 years ago to an estimated 23,000 today. My guest today is biologist Bill Given, associate researcher at the Denver Zoo, founder of The Wild Source, a research and Africa safari travel company, and for today's conversation, the principal investigator for the conditioned taste aversion project in Africa, being carried out in uh, southwest Africa, Botswana, and the project is a Wild Eyes, Wild Eyes grantee, and we've been funding it, and I've, been no I've known Bill for, what, I think since 2009. So, conditionation version, and Bill, we're working to take beef off the menu at the Lion Buffet. Welcome, Bill. Thank you, Ellie. Good morning, and uh, I appreciate all the great support I've received from Wild Eyes, and I'm very excited to share more about our project. Well, that's what we're going to do, do today. I am so happy to have you here. It's uh, You're in and out of the country a lot, and we just managed to catch each other, what, I think, in the 10 days be between your trips. That's right. It's good timing. So um, why don't we start with a little background about how you became involved with this project and segued into Condition Taste Aversion, which for ease we call it CTA, and how it started and how you became the champion of a non-lethal, really important uh, solution for African lions. 
Yeah, it kind of was the two different hats I wear of being a wildlife biologist and being involved in the African safari tourism side of things. I uh, do a lot of safari work in Botswana, and I learned of a tourism lodge where the, the owner also had a lot of cattle, and he was losing a lot of cattle to lions, and he was capturing lions and, and uh, actually fencing them into large areas to hold them because he didn't want to destroy them. And I was asked if I'd like to consult on that problem, and uh, that was an exciting opportunity for me. But there's very few tools, really no tools that were working at the time, so I was starting from square one. So that brings us into what is conditioned taste aversion. Give us, uh, it has a very interesting background of where it began um, from people to transitioning it and transferring it to wildlife. Give us a little history of what CTA is. Yeah, it was actually really discovered in the field of psychology before it came to wildlife management where uh, the, there's been this known effect where if, uh, if a food makes any person or even any animal sick, then it will be rejected just at the smell and taste level. So some psychologists at, at UCLA, John Garcia, who kind of founded this, they called it the Garcia effect, uh, started testing it on rats and found that you could avert them from certain foods. And then that got into the wildlife management field. Uh, Dr. Carl Gustafson was kind of the big founder of taking it into the field with coyotes and also doing captive experiments with wolves, coyotes, uh, different bird species. And that eventually went to Dr. Lowell Nicholas, who did a lot of work with free-ranging raccoons. And that's who I found. I found Lowell, and I was able to pick his brain and get some mentorship and try and take this to the next step with African lions. And which you have. So just for our listeners, uh, Dr. Nick, uh, uh, Lowell Nicholas is part of our CTA team. He's the mentor uh, behind all of this. But Bill is the, the boots on the ground man in the field, and he's created an incredible team. And it's been an interesting progression from taking CTA to the wild and also on wild populations of what we've treated the Mexican wolf recovery program. We're working on mountain lions in the southwest and across the border. So it has amazing uh, possibilities here. So let's bring it back to um, African lions. We started our uh, I'm going to say our because I feel very much a part of this project and got to be a part of the first trials at the the safari lodge you were talking about on the captive wild lions, which uh, that's a distinction. They're very wild, but as you had said, they uh, put them into an enclosure because the rancher did not want to destroy them. So let's start there um, in terms of there is a, a process here in science so that we can document and analyze and understand and eventually publish these effects. So this is not just a winging it kind of thing. It's a, it's a serious scientific project. So tell us a little bit how it got started and some of the process that you had to go through to initiate this on the ground in Africa. Yeah, Ellie, you're definitely right to include yourself as uh, our and the team member. You've been there from the beginning. Um, ba basically, the, the process taps into an evolutionary mechanism where there's lots of poisonous, dangerous things to eat on Earth. And so there's a primitive, unconscious message that goes into your brainstem that protects you 
from consuming something that has has caused you to be sick. So most most people get this because you've been food poisoned at some time in your life and you can't return to that. So what we've tried to do is is take it the next step is we know this natural phenomenon exists, but how do we use it as a management tool? So with the lions, the first step was figuring out how to create a bait made out of beef. So we take up a ground beef mixture and we use a veterinary medication called thiabendazole, which is used for worming animals. Um, and we mix that in and then we sew the, the bait meat inside of a hide, which is critical because we need our lions to recognize at the scent that this is something I can't eat. If they've already tasted it, it's too late. That means they've made the kill and that we already have a trouble situation. So that was the first part. We worked with these captive lions in Botswana and we, pr we presented them with beef baits and we were able to see great reactions where they would no longer eat the beef. So it's really important um, to understand here this connection and also that it is really non-toxic. The dose level is not a lethal dose. It's enough to give you a tummy ache. And like you had said, we've all eaten that tuna sandwich or that burrito that tasted bad. Now, whenever we smell it, even walking through an airport, you get that sort of uh, revulsion response, and you don't ever want to eat that again. So that's what we're doing with lions. It... Um, it gives them a bad tummy ache and there's a whole process and um, that's what Bill's working on and that's the whole protocol that's being scientifically um, documented. So um, we worked in Botswana with these uh, captive wild lions and we had great results. So what, what took off from there? How are we, um, Bill's the one who's been doing most of the ground work and creating a team. Tell us a little bit about how you've created this team and what actually happens through this process and well, how you as, document it. As you say, Ali, safety is a really critical issue. So the, a big part of the captive study was not only demonstrating that we could make them not want to eat beef anymore, but that it was safe. So we, we were able to document that the lions were not harmed and they had good recovery. With that evidence, then I did a presentation to the, the Botswana Wildlife and National Parks Department, and they gave us approval to start trying to work with free-ranging lions. Uh, there was a challenge, though. They did not want us to put baits in the field. They're worried about non-target species eating these baits. And, and we have them dosed for lions, which, of course, are quite large. So the, the ex what we next needed to do was to capture lions, uh, we put satellite collars on them. These would be lions that we know are eating cattle. Then we would move them out of the cattle area and into protected areas, either the Central Kalahari Game Reserve or the Kalahati Transfrontier Park. So that's what we've been doing over the last two years. And uh, the first part of the study is to see, can you just simply move lions? But uh, but we find that that's problematic. The lions don't have a long-term survivability. You can't just move a lion and release it and expect that to work. Well, tell it. Let's 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 back up here a second and stay here for a minute. A lot of people think, well, just move the lion. Um, so tell us why translocating lions is problematic. We've talked with Tony Fitzjohn and the work that George Adamson did in reintroducing lions into the wild that have been captive, which is a problem in itself. But taking a wild lion and putting it someplace, tell us why this is not easy. 
has a few real challenges. Um, if, if there was a perfect place to put them, they probably wouldn't be outside the parks to start with. So they've left because they, they either needed food or water or all the best territories are already held by other lions. So when we move a lion back into an area and release it, it's, it's uh, as if you left one of us in a new, new country even, in a big city, and we don't know what to do. So they don't know where the food is, they don't know where the water is, and they're in danger from other lions. So between all of those factors... Many just cannot establish themselves into a new range. Some of them have amazing homing capabilities. We've had lions that we've moved four times, and the, this lion ended up back next to the same village every time. And eventually that ends in their death being shot over livestock. So this is the outline of the problem. We have lions eating cows because, A, they're, they're being shrunk into smaller and smaller territories. We have climate change affecting habitats and prey species. So as Bill had just said, lions move. They, they're, they're nomadic. They'll claim a territory, but when they lose food and can't get there and there's an easy meal on the hoof right over there, a cow or a goat or a sheep, which we haven't even gotten into, we're just working on cows right now, then it's a real easy decision for the cow, to, uh, excuse me, for the lion to go take that cow. So this is a multifaceted and a uh, project that has a lot of interlocking parts that all have to be addressed. So Bill has done a great job of telling us some of these parts and why it's difficult to move lions. We see documentaries all the time of lions and all of that, but it's, it's, it's not that simple and it's not that uh, in-your-face simple. So in terms of predator treatment programs and non-lethal, why is CTA so incredible? We've got a few minutes left until break. Uh, CTA is completely unique because it actually removes the desire of the animal to want to get livestock. All the other solutions are barrier methods. Build a better fence, uh, use a shepherding dog or, or other animal to try and guard the, the livestock. But in all those situations, the predator simply is faced with a problem to think around. The uniqueness of the CTA is it just absolutely removes the desire to want to go to cows. It actually is it can become a repellent to them. We see it with humans. A great example is chemotherapy where... Uh, the human gets a chemo treatment, then they consume a meal and it makes them sick. And as a human, we logically know it had nothing to do with the food, and yet the, the subconscious part of the brain continues to protect you against that smell and taste. So if we can make this a usable wildlife management tool, then we're actually taking away that, that desire. And it's not a barrier method, but an actual way to change the desire and behavior of the predator. So that's what's completely unique and powerful about the method. And it's also important to say that it is um, in in cooperation with barrier methods. We do need the barrier methods. We do need uh, livestock ranchers and pastoralists to create better BOMAs, corrals, or ways to keep their livestock as opposed to an open invitation to the buffet. So that is part of a critical part of CTA is we need to also educate the people on the ground to better livestock husbandry and management. But we're adding a new tool that, as Bill said, creates a hardwired barrier and that the the cow itself, and hopefully we'll get into sheep and goats, becomes a trigger to say, I can't eat that. 
So, um, Bill, we're, we've got a, like a, a minute here till break, a couple minutes. Um, what were some of the first barrier blocks that you faced in trying to get this on the ground? There's a whole permitting process you have to go through and um, dealing with uh, national parks and science and, and laboratory animals. There's a, there's a whole other build-up process to even begin to do this on wild populations, right? Yeah, indeed. Uh, just for working with captive animals, there's different ethics protocols. You need to get approval by a committee. Uh, I was able to do that through the Denver Zoo. Then we go to the government of Botswana and we can present them and then they have to be willing to invite me as a guest into their country and, and uh, do work. And they wanted to see successful captive work there prior to letting us uh, go into the field. And, and one of the things I'm really proud of is, is uh, I became a member of the Kalahari Research and Conservation Program, which is a mound Botswana-based program. And we, uh, as a foreign scientist, it's, it's important that I'm bringing knowledge and transferring that to a local person. So there, there is a, a research biologist named Raps, who I work hand-in-hand with, and he has become the Botswana expert on conditioned taste aversion. And we have a team of, of uh, guys who are going for PhDs on wildebeest uh, research and wild dogs for master's projects and the whole range of species. So we're really proud of that. It's, it's critical that we don't just come in and do our work and get to have fun and fame and all that kind of thing. What, what we want to do is, is build for a lasting conservation where the local people can do these kinds of things for themselves in the future. So this is amazing. So we've just touched the tip of the iceberg. Uh, we're going to cut away to a break. Stick with us because we have a lot left, uh, a lot more to tell you. So we'll be right back. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Tune in Tuesdays and join the credit master and consumer advocate, Mr. D, a.k.a. Bruce J. Danielson, and learn the whole truth about credit risk scoring, collectors, both kinds, credit bureaus, credit cards, tax liens, mortgages, and much more. 
Find out how to use accountability combat to protect yourself from becoming a victim and to fight back against corporate abusers, such as banksters who have taken unfair advantage of most of us. The Consumer Fightback Show educates consumers on how to find relief within today's onerous credit system. See you Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. What can you find on Get Real Radio? Well, quite honestly, who you really are. Join host James Robinson each week for a program designed to reveal more about yourself and your world through words of wisdom and profound guests. You'll discover more about the spiritual movement and how it can work with you and alert you to problems you may not be aware of. It will educate, titillate, and enlighten your mind. Get Real Radio is broadcast live every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. This could end up being the best time of your week. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss, Our Wild World, and my guest, Bill Given. We're talking lions and new tools in the toolbox, taking beef off the menu, condition, taste aversion. So in the first section, uh, Bill gave us a really good feeling and understanding of what all is involved and quite a few interlocking parts that take place when you're trying to literally uh, modify the behavior of a wild animal, in this case a lion, uh, one of the largest predators, probably the largest predator in Africa, and their whole social system and uh, all the problems associated. So with the procedure of conditioned taste aversion, we had to go through some captive trials and all the permissions and creating a team on the ground. and. Bill, you brought up a very interesting point that a lot of times when we think of Africa, we think of it as one big place, wildlife everywhere, and that um, it's it's like being in part of a nature documentary. There are huge differences between what goes on in East Africa, um, climate-wise and wildlife-wise and people-wise, and what's going on in Southwest Africa, where, Botswana in particular, where we're doing these trials. And you had mentioned temperature. So um, tell us why temperature has a big effect on capturing, darting, and holding lions to do this CTA protocol. Yeah, that's been a really interesting part. As I share my project, a lot of people are more familiar with East Africa and the Maasai culture of Kenya and Tanzania and their love of their cattle. And and there, it's, everything is focused around really building a better barrier. Can we make a, a better enclosure to bring in our livestock at night and protect them? And, and I have a big problem in the Kalahari. It can be 115, 120 degrees during the middle of the day at times of year. And the, the cows won't eat. They just want to find the little bit of shade that they can. So there they have to graze them at night. So we face a, a different challenge with with dealing with livestock husbandry there. And then you're also right for handling lions. It's, it's a tough time. 
um, that time of year when it's the hottest is also the driest so there's not much surface water and that's often when the lions are far outside the parks going to where the cattle are because there's water for the cattle and so then we end up having to capture lions at that time and I, I know everybody sees television where you, you see a nice lion in the park that's habituated to a vehicle and you drive up and they're so easy to dart. It's not like that with uh, cattle killing lions. They sneak around. They're very wary of people. They just hear a car and they'll run. So we have a real challenge even. We use Bushman trackers often and, and use ancient skills to track a lion. Then as we get close to it, we often have to have a chase. Luckily, lions don't have a lot of stamina. Eventually, they'll hide in a thick bush and then we can dart them. But at that point, we're already concerned. If it's a hot day, then we have to be careful to keep them cool. We have to find a way to water them, which was um, one of our original challenges. Uh, we'd have lions dehydrated. So we've now built a specialized cage uh, extension where we can attach a piece to the cage and provide water dishes. And just some of these basic little things we've had to think of to overcome our environmental challenges. So it really is, even though we have a protocol and we have a good understanding, it's translating um, from paper and logistics and thinking through a problem, trying to think of all the associated what-ifs to the real situation where the rubber meets the road. And working in a place like Botswana, it's not watching TV. We're dealing with really wild huge vast areas where lions are very clever this is not your safari lion these are lions that are not social uh, they don't want to be people but they are creating problems and conflicts and typically the response for the people is to just simply shoot the lion and uh, maybe we can get into that a little bit the effects on the social let's get into it now the effects on the social dynamics of when you kill a lion uh, what it does like a breaking the the eight ball into the pool table, the what it, it just tumbles out into a lion population. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, lions, one of the really interesting and fun things working with lions or even observing them as a tourist is is they're social. And anytime you have social animals, there's a lot more complexities that are going on, uh, different relationships, different bonds. Lions in particular are, are interesting because the pride is made up of related females and they're young. And the males actually are, are really just going to be there for a while. They, they hold the pride as long as they can, but that turns over. So the really successful pride males could have a pride for three or four years. Many males might only hold a pride for one year. And whenever there's a changeover in males, Often the incoming males can kill the young, get the cubs, to try and entice females back into a reproductive state. So when you kill a male lion, it creates a lot of social um, catastrophe. Yeah, disruption, catastrophe. It, it really can wreak havoc. And, you know, you can overcome that if it happens once. If it keeps happening, all of a sudden you go three, four years with no successful cubs and you start to lose generations of lions. So we really have to think uh, widely when you think in lion management. It's not as easy as just saying this individual means this to the society because they, they really are intertwined together. So it also just, you know, segues into what we can think about in terms, and we won't talk about it here, it's too big of an issue, of trophy hunting and picking out particular animals 
and the social disruption and what it does to the landscape. And as we had said, our wild lion populations are diminishing. And um, now you're getting an idea of what all is involved in keeping that pride together. So um, let's talk a little bit about some of the difficulties you faced. You know, you've got some amazing stories, campfire stories. Um, give us one of those of uh, a situation of capturing and darting a lion. Well, I think you alluded to it earlier when you mentioned planning. We uh, we always make a plan, and then sounds like a plan. <laughs> Looks good on paper, but will it fly? Exactly, and then usually about every hour or two, we make a new plan. <laughs> so uh, it's plan it's A, very plan important. B, plan Z. <laughs> exactly, it's very important to be adaptable in the field. Uh, with these lions, we can go and and fail to find them for a day or two. Uh, once we once we dart a lion, then everything changes. Uh, the lions lead us. So uh, there's times at night, basically, one, one of our assistants, Maluki, says a research vehicle is never full. So we continually add and add and add supplies as we go. And then uh, sometimes we'll be following a lion and it becomes 10 o'clock at night and we lose the lion and that's where you camp and then you wake up in the morning and you find out you're 25 miles off of the nearest road and, and when I say road I mean like a two track through the desert sand yeah these are not roads not, no. not in the conventional <laughs> sense of what we think of it it's it's a track usually a dust track and in the Kalahari it can be a whole lot of sand and you're just looking for the most recent tire imprint to follow and find um, a lion pug mark and try and get to that so your story also brings up, um, you had sent me some rather amazing pictures. That's where you camp at night because that's where you leave off. And uh, you woke up to some interesting things in your camp one day. Yeah, I mean, I've had a lot of interesting things in camp. Quite often, ironically, the lions come to visit us. Sometimes, um, especially after we've relocated a lion, then we're actually staying inside national parks. And then we do have some of the more habituated tourist-type lions uh, I've showed up in camp before and seen lions sniffing my tent, at which point we uh, we made ourselves stakes on the fire, and you'd look up with the headlamps, and we see two male lions standing about 60 yards out from us. They back up to about 100 yards when they see the headlamp. Later, you're brushing your teeth. They're still there. Finally, at uh, 4 in the morning, I can I can hear the sniffing of my tent right next to my head by one of these lions. And then you wake up and you find that some of our unpacked equipment they've taken and, and dragged away a couple hundred yards. So you never know what's going to be there. Uh, we often, when you pack up your tent, you watch out for scorpions. They like to sleep under the tent to get the warmth from us. So there's, uh, there's a lot of surprises out there in the bush. So it sounds like fun and excitement and adventure and high risk, which is all the things that engage us as quote-unquote entertainment. But the real deal is a very different thing, and you really need to keep your stupidity factor in check and be aware of animal behavior so that um, you're not creating any situation that would create danger for you or the lions. So um, you also brought up a... a a point that I think it's important to let our listeners know that in this permitting process and all of this, you're given a time frame, let's say 10 days, three weeks. And you just mentioned, you know, there's days you can't find the lions and you have to stop and you start hitting the wire of you, your time is up. So tell us a little bit about that, you know, these, these constraints that you're faced with. 
Yeah, that's a huge challenge. One thing is the cost of veterinary services is astronomical, and we need a a veterinarian to dart the lions. It's nobody else is allowed to do it, and because of the harsh conditions we work in, you want a vet there to make sure that that proper care is administered. So we're lucky that we partner directly with the government of Botswana. We have we have. support from the government and they provide their their veterinarians from their wildlife department for us which is a a huge help on budget but the the flip side to that is we all have to coordinate schedules and and my project is not the only project they have going so sometimes i i will be there from america and and our team is out in the field and then the vet has something else that they have to do and i may end up sitting in the in town for two or three days or if if i know it's going to be a few days then i take good advantage and go on safari for a couple of days and then come back so we have to work around schedules uh we have to work around punctured tires is a big problem it's a lot of thorny vegetation in the desert and uh, especially the government guys they they unfortunately are not stocked with the same level of tires as our research team so they suffer through a lot of punctured tires and then have to go to town to requisition new ones so there's uh there's a lot of unexpected things that that lead to time loss out in the bush well this is a perfect opportunity to say you know we're talking budget we need money and uh, people our listeners can share the news and you can donate directly to this project condition taste version through the wild eyes website www.wildeyes.org and uh, the benefit of that is you do get the uh, tax benefit because we are a 501c3 but if you're just interested and don't want to go through that then you can certainly uh, connect with bill through his website uh, thewildsource.com where there's a lot of stories he's got a blog where he talks about what's going on in the field and keeps everybody up to date and a lot of wild stories and you can go on safari with bill the whole advantage of having a biologist with you on safari brings your experience to a whole new level as opposed to just driving along and looking for the big five you get to learn a lot more about what's going on in the environment and uh, animal behavior and who's looking for who and all the signals that are going on bill has a great team of people you get to meet some of the researchers and have an incredible experience so um let's we've got uh, let's get into a little bit back about the actual uh process of documenting the science side Uh, because this is a scientific project it does need documentation so that we can prove to the world that this works um, Bill's just explained a lot of how difficult it is to show that it works, but once you do get a lion and you do go through the protocol, let's let's talk a little bit about what the exact pro- protocol is and then how you go about documenting, documenting and analyzing this data so that we get publishable results so that other countries, we can introduce this as a tool in the toolbox. Yeah, we're at a critical stage right now, Ellie, because we have done a good job of, of uh, collaring lions, studying the translocations, learning about the unique features of the Kalahari and, and how our lions behave. Now we're really ready to do the taste aversion portion. Um, step one to that is we need a proper BOMA facility. I mentioned early on that, uh, that we're not allowed to just leave baits in the field, which eventually would be the solution. We want to be able to treat lions without catching them. But the, the government at this point understandably 
presumably wants us to capture a lion so we have full control of, of the baits and and can ensure that the lion has consumed a full bait so that we're confident that it's been treated. So we're, we're working with the government right now, uh, raising some money on our side, and then they're doing some materials and labor. And we're going to build a proper BOMA, they call it, a basically a outdoor cage facility where we can hold lions for about seven to ten days while um, once we have them there settled into the enclosure, then we make our bait, which I mentioned about early, where we use beef and we uh, mix the veterinary medication at a dosage that will make the, the lion ill. We sew it inside the hide and then we present that. If a lion consumes the full bait and we have the right dosage, and that's something we're, we're still experimenting with, we think we know the right dosage, but it may need to be stronger. Um, once they consume that, then we consider that a treated lion. Uh, then that lion needs to exit with a satellite collar, and that, that kind of goes back to funding as well. Wild Eyes has been by far the biggest supporter on this side of things. Uh, satellite collars are close to $5,000 a collar, um, so that's one of our biggest expenses. Then we can release the lion. Uh, we ideally we'd like to release them close back to the livestock areas, but politically we'll have to see if that's possible or if we need to put them on the edge of a reserve um, because we need to keep our our farmer constituents happy as well. But once they're released, then with the satellite collar, we can watch their movements, see if they come to cattle areas or not. If they come to a cattle area, then that's when we need to go and field truth. We need to talk to the people. We need to investigate if there is any livestock killed and be able to document, was that our treated lion or was it a different cause? And that's the only way that we can really know, is the taste aversion working or not? So our listeners are getting an idea of just how collaborative this is, but also how complicated it is when you're dealing with a large, free-ranging carnivore that has taken to eating our food. We get upset when um, carnivores and the predators, whether it's a wolf or a raccoon or a raven, um, starts eating our stuff. So you had mentioned, we've got like a minute or so here, you had mentioned, um, and I think it's important to, to highlight here, not leaving baits in the field. Because why? They're worried about non-target species. Um, you know, we, we use, luckily, a veterinary medication so we know what lethal doses are and we have a lot of safety leeway with an animal as big as a lion. But the concern is vultures are very threatened at this time and then there's smaller animals like jackals and we, we don't want any of them to get overdosed. So that's something we have to work out and make sure that we can keep all the animals safe while doing our work. So a couple of weeks ago, we had an episode here, um, wildlife poisoning and prevention. So poaching and using poison is a big problem. We talked about how many vultures we're losing. So it's important when working, even with um, a rather well-known veterinary tool, a deworming agent can be toxic. It's not a pesticide. It is not a killing agent. It just makes a lion ill. It's really important to know that, a bad stomach ache. And it's working on you know, hardwired responses. This is not a poaching tool. It is a mitigation conflict tool. So um, we've, got, we've got to take a little break here. So stick with us. My guest is Bill Given, a biologist, associate researcher in the Denver Zoo, and the principal investigator for Condition Taste Aversion. We'll be right back.
Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. Welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss with my guest Bill Given, and we're talking lions and conditioned taste aversion. So before the break, we were talking about uh, the critical moment we are at. Um, Bill has been working on this for over a decade. Wild Eyes has been involved for the last seven years, and uh, we are at a monumental moment where um, we can really make something happen, and what we need is funding. So if you've got... Um, the love and the passion to protect African lions, which is are greatly in need of our help, and you've been listening to today's program, then donate through Wild Eyes at www.wildeyes.org or go directly to thewildsource.com. Learn more and um, learn more about Bill. Meet Bill. Go on safari with Bill. Your your um, travel money helps support this project too and learn more directly from the wild source of Bill. So we left off at the Build a Better Boma the difference between East Africa and Southwest Africa conditions wise and all the various um, side aspects and tangents that are involved in doing CTA on the ground with wild lions. So um, what are some of the issues that you're having to deal with in terms of the BOMA and getting it going and uh, where we stand now and in terms of um, proving we we know CTA works um, improving that CTA does work on the larger scale to the governments to the world and uh, the science side of this yeah so Ellie this is really where we're we're at the point where we need to document that this can work as a management tool with free-ranging predators. Uh, all this history that we've discussed, there's lots of literature and documentation. There's no doubt that that this effect 
works, that there is condition, taste, aversion, um, possibilities as an evolutionary defense mechanism. And we've had great luck proving it with Mexican wolves, mountain lions, and African lions that we can make them not eat the meat that we choose to have them not eat. Um, when I first brought this method back to the forefront, uh, the resistance from lion experts was, okay, sure, you can make them not eat a bait, but that's not the same thing as a live cow. So we are now at that process where we need to be able to show that we can feed the, the bait and that the taste aversion is strong enough that the predator will avoid the live prey. And I'm very optimistic we can do this because the, the early founders, pioneers of this method did it successfully many times with live prey. Um, the ethics were a little different in the 1970s and I've seen amazing video of wolves and coyotes being put in with live sheep and live lambs respectively. And uh, you could see these predators make the kill, feed, then they were taste averted to, to the sheep and then put back in. And it's amazing to see it as the predator will rush in towards a prey animal, get the smell, and just walk away. And then these animals were actually very hungry and you can see them eat an alternative prey like a rabbit. Um, Dr. Nicholas, my real mentor in all of this, he took it the next step because sometimes captive animals are kind of wonky. We don't want to say, okay, that worked with a captive animal. It's definitely going to work with a live, free-ranging carnivore. So he, he did a really elegant study with raccoons, and he habituated these raccoons to dog food, and he could identify the different individuals. And then he tethered live chickens there, and raccoons are voracious predators, so they, they would kill and devour the chickens. Then he was able to condition taste avert them to chickens. But because of the dog food, they continued to come back to the area. And you could see live chickens tethered right next to a raccoon, and the raccoon wouldn't go for them at all. So I know it it's, can work on free-ranging, but um, you know a lot of people will say a raccoon's not an African lion. The fact is this is a law of nature, so it should be the same. But if we can prove that we can use this to avert the iconic predator of all predators, African lions, from eating cows, that will really open it up and show that we have a solution that can apply worldwide to all predator livestock issues. So this CTA is a critical tool in the toolbox. It's non-lethal. It's not a barrier method. It's not flattery. We're not scaring an animal temporarily like the wolves and the sheep issues and um, mountain lions with desert bighorn sheep. The possibilities are tremendous here. And so we are at that critical point of transferring all the work that we've done over the past decade and more, if you want to include going back to the 1970s, of transferring not only the protocol to lions and from a bait to a live animal, a cow on the hoof running by, triggering everything a cat um, needs to say that I can eat, to um, a worldwide non-lethal Tool. So the possibilities are endless. Please help us. We need funding. Or just, you know, spread the word and tell people what's going on. Uh, non-lethal tools, ethics have changed. So doing 
projects like Bill is doing on the ground were a bit more constrained because, as Bill had said, the ethics have changed. We're not um, doing science the way we did before, and there's a lot of emotional attachment to animal rights, animal welfare. So CTA works on all these levels. Um, so let's say, Bill, here we are, and we've proven that CTA works. How do we go about transferring this knowledge to the ground, um, to the local populations, and uh, what are the possibilities? This is another genius thing about the method. Um, you know, the, often you'll hear methods that, you know, build this enormous fence that costs millions of dollars, this uh, high tech, you need PhDs to make all this kind of things happen. The, the beauty of this is it's actually pretty low tech. If you can follow a recipe to make uh, a simple meal, then you can do this. So, you know, we, we basically have a quantity of meat that we need to mix into a bait and then we weigh out the medication and it's not a super expensive medication either. And then you sew it inside of a hide. So the, probably the hardest skill, and, and I'll say Ellie excelled at this. We always thank God when you were there to sew the baits because you could <laughs> sew three in the time that it takes me to do one. But it's it's low tech and we can take this and we can easily teach wildlife officers in an area. Wildlife officers could have a, a group of villagers or farmers who could maybe even be paid a very sh small amount from U.S. dollars that's a nice living for them to help make baits. So it's, um, it's the kind of thing that we can take global. It's low-tech. It's uh, affordable. So it, it's a solution that, that really can be spread community to community. And it's another good use for a cow to keep other cows and ranchers happy. You know, if we can sacrifice or, and we pay for the cattle, it does need to be a live, fresh cow, freshly killed to make these baits. So the scent, the everything, and they do, and it does need to be a cow from the area where the lions are because of all the environmental factors that the lions are, use their skills to hunt, um, it needs. It can't be a strange smell. It needs to be recognizable to the lion as something it can eat from the area it lives in. So it, the the possibilities are are here are incredible. Income generation um, from the sale of a cow from the re, uh, excuse me the rancher or the pastoralist to the villagers to making these baits to the researchers of following a simple recipe. It's a low tech, incredible. Um, po the possibilities are are endless here of what how CTA could be used not just on lions as we talked about wolves Mexican wolves um, raccoons it is a tool it's not a one it, it's sort of a one-size-fits-all but what's great is that it can be manipulated to whatever targeted species and prey species we're looking at where the conflict arises right that's right. It's very versatile. So we can use it for different species. We just uh, adjust to body weights. So both the meat and the quantity of medication is adjusted to the body weight of the predator. And and I think you touched on something great here that, you know, really to, to do lasting conservation, it has to be community-based. And that, that's, you know, this is very engaging. We, we go in, we explain to them, they care about their livestock. And uh, and we don't want to forget the farmer side of it. I think you know, for for me as a wildlife biologist and conservationist, there's no doubt I'm I'm about the animals. That's what I love. But you you know you have to understand this, these are real losses that people suffer when they lose livestock, and that's 
you know, sometimes that's the ability to send their kids to school because they sell a cow to do that. Sometimes it's uh, it's more commercial farming and it's it's much bigger money for those people. But it's it's their wealth and we have to understand and engage with them. So I love that they can be part of our team in the solution rather than us coming in and saying, here's a regulation and this is what we're going to do to save your cows. We can say, no, this is uh, you're part of the team. This is how we make baits. We want to source one of your cows. You can help in the bait process. So there's a chance to really engage all the parties that are involved. And that's what it's going to take to make conservation work. As we've talked about here so often on Our Wild World, conservation is a long-term process. It's also a um, growing process. What worked 100 years ago doesn't work today. We have new tools. We have technology. We have uh, brilliant minds, and we need to transfer that knowledge. And we have uh, new ways to create low-tech and high-tech solutions. This is a low-tech one, and... um, Tell, we've got a few minutes here left. Tell, give us a story of, uh, um, you know, an engagement with the community, let's say before and after, um, if you have that, whether it's an African lion or a wolf or a mountain lion, some of the, or the Mexican wolves that you've done, of, you know, all sides of the story. Let's bring it down to some real people here. Yeah, probably the one of the most poignant days in my life is um, on my safari business. One of my best friends is is a bushman in the Okavango Delta, and uh, you know they've done DNA studies and traced it back and and found that the original all humans descend from these these five sects of bushman people. And he was nice enough to arrange a visit for me to go to his his village and we we had a big meeting under the tree classic style and and uh, my friend Dick Sima his father was one of the elders of this community and he came under the tree and started speaking in this ancient click language and my friend interpreted this for me and the first thing he said was the roar of the lion was my dinner bell and he told us how he would track lions and then they would rush lions off the kill and cut the meat and walk away and that was the most effective way for these people to get meat is let the lion do the work and then uh, (laughs) take it away so there's this long history of humans and lions working together really I guess we we steal from them (laughs) they work for us not with us but there was a mutual respect between the species um, so, and as I'm being told this, the probably about 500 people from this village are surrounding this, and it's it's just an amazing story to hear, and and so uh, applicable to the, my life's work. Then uh, my friend starts to explain to them what I'm trying to do, this taste aversion, and there's laughter in the community, just like I've heard in many places. People think this is crazy. You can't feed something and make it sick and then it won't eat anything and uh, then I asked them I said what was this area like when you know they were hunter-gatherer people and and now in modern times they've been settled into a village and at that point they got livestock and I asked them before you had your livestock what was it like here and they said oh there's elephants and lions and it's just such an amazing array of wildlife and now they, that that animals are maybe an hour's walk away from there because they have livestock and livestock brings the human conflict and as I could see the their faces changing as they're pondering this and talking about it and and the conversation ended with them saying, I really hope you're successful with this. We need this. 
So we have shown that CTA is successful. You can look up um, condition taste aversion at Dr. Lowell Nicholas's website. You can learn more about it at thewildsource.com, Bill Given's website. He's got a blog. Read some of the stories. And you can learn more about the whole uh, project from start to now at www.wildeyes.org. So um, we do need funding. Please give. We're at a critical moment. And as you can see, this is a tool that covers all the bases. Um, it's low tech. Yes, it does cost money because we're at a, at a, a monumental point in this decades long project. Um, but in the end, it is a low tech solution that provides so many solutions for so many issues that we're facing all over the world today, especially as we're losing one of the most iconic species across Africa, the wild lion. So, um, Bill, we've got just a couple minutes left. Um, what's your next step? When's your next trip? Uh, I actually head for Botswana in, uh, what, like about 15 days. Um, guarding a safari, which um, after the Wild Eyes being my biggest supporter, my own safari company, the Wild Source, has been my second biggest. I do a lot of a lot of self-support. Um, as I'm there, I'll touch base, uh, work with my team, catch up on everything that's going on. We recently just collared a lion, so I'll I'll get the latest on all of that. But then, really, at this point, we're waiting for. Probably the next couple months as we raise money to get this BOMA built and, and have that. Hopefully, maybe around June, July, if that can be built, then we'll get to start doing our taste aversion treatments, and that'll be the huge next step. Well, folks, here you are. We're right in the middle of conservation history being made. You can be a part of it. Uh, you can donate. Uh, you can go on safari with a biologist, with Bill. Learn a whole lot more than just floating off the, uh, across the surface on a safari and trying to look for the big five. You can learn a lot about behavior. That is the advantage of going on a safari and a good reason to go on a safari with a biologist, with a conservationist, and you get a much fuller picture. So here we are, conservation history being made right now as we speak, and you can be a part of it. So unfortunately, we're out of time, but it's been a great show. Thanks so much, Bill. Thank you, Allie, for all your support over the years and, and featuring me on Our Wild World. It's it's wonderful to share the project. Well, I've been dying to get you here um, for a long time, and uh, thank you so much, And despite all our little glitches today, and I wish you the best of safe travel. And um, keep me posted, and we'll come back and keep our listeners posted about what's going on in our wild world. This is Ellie Weiss. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. <music>